Você para o lote. Thank you. And I have no shortage of offers of watches when I ask for them, when I start preaching. Right. Right, I'm going to have to uh, abbreviate somewhat what I was going to bring this morning, but that's all right. Ephesians 3.21. Right at the end of this uh, wonderful chapter, I'm not going to be able to read a big portion of it. But do you remember the, the last time that I, I preached in this series from Ephesians? We looked at the intent of God for the church. Verse 10 of chapter 3. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Let's carry on reading. According to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Isn't that wonderful? We can approach God with freedom and with confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings. Paul's in prison at the time he writes. For you, which are your glory? For this reason I kneel before the Father. Paul is now praying. I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's what's happening now, Barry, for you this morning because you cried to God, said, I want to know you. Please come into my life this morning. You can read those words now as many of us here this morning can and know that they, they apply to us. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge to know it, to know the love of Christ in our life God was speaking earlier wasn't he about his love about how he knows your situation he loves you and it surpasses knowledge that love of Christ that you <coughs> excuse me, you may be filled to the, <coughs> the, the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, during this series of uh, studies in Ephesians, we're looking at what I've called a glorious church. That's what God wants. He wants a glorious church. He doesn't want um, a church that's just some kind of convenience for people to use. He doesn't want a church that's a joke in the nation. 
He doesn't want a church that's an embarrassment to Christians. He wants a glorious church. That's what he's after in our generation, in our nation, in our area here. He's after a church that is glorious. And this morning, we come to the verse in Ephesians that gives us the title for our series, The Glorious Church. Because in Ephesians 3.21, Paul prays in this kind of doxology at the end of chapter 3, to him be glory in the church. To him be glory in the church. And notice that it says, and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations. That includes us, doesn't it? If it's throughout all generations, it is not just a glorious church in the first century. It's not just a glorious church in the Acts of the Apostles. It's a glorious church throughout all generations, and that includes us. Now, through some of the generations, there have been times of tremendous darkness. And actually, the glory of the church has sometimes just shone out like one little candle in a vast darkness. But there has always been a touch of God's glory in the church right throughout the generations. But I believe, and I believe it's God's call to us as a church here in Brighton, that God wants this generation to be a generation when light from the church shines out, when there is glory in the church, okay? So that's what we're looking at this morning, glory in the church. And so we're going to See what we can learn from this passage this morning. See what God has to say to us about a glorious church. Now, I think we have to ask a few questions about the use of the word glory and glorious. Uh, From time to time, when I've sung the national anthem, uh, I've wondered what I'm singing when I sing. I'll not sing it for you. I'll just repeat it for you now. Send her victorious, happy, and glorious. What do I mean when I sing that about Her Majesty the Queen? Am I thinking about Her Majesty in all her royal regalia with the crown and with her royal robes? Am I thinking about her being the most important sovereign in the world? Am I thinking about royal pageantry and procession when I sing that? Or perhaps those of you who tune in on the telly to the last night of the proms when it comes on, And you get all those people bouncing up and down and singing, Land of Hope and Glory. What are we singing? Land of Hope and Glory. What's this glory? Are we thinking about the glory of the British Empire? Are we thinking about, that was, are we thinking about our rich heritage as a a country, as a nation? What are we thinking about when we think about or sing about glory? And so we've got to ask that kind of question when we come to a phrase like, to him be glory in the church. What is this? Glory in the church. What do we mean by a glorious church? Well, the best place to go to get an answer is not a dictionary or an encyclopedia or a thesaurus. The best place is the Bible. And what we find, first of all, when we look at the Bible and we see the word that is used in the Bible for glory, both the Hebrew and the Greek word, we find is that the word in its basic meaning means weight or heaviness. Now, remember that the next time you get on the bathroom scales and uh, you find that you're a bit overweight again, you can shout glory with new meaning now because that's what glory means. The root of the meaning of the word glory is weight or heaviness. And as words do, this word 
evolved from weight or heaviness to mean substance, to mean worth, to mean wealth, and to mean splendor. So you can see something of the transition, the stages of evolution of the particular word that uh, we have now as, as glory. So that in the Old Testament... Uh, we read of Jacob's glory being his flocks and his herds. You know, that's his substance, his wealth. And uh, we read the word glory in Matthew 7 when it talks about Solomon in all his glory. The, the sheer weight of the substance of the kingdom of Solomon and the royal household. All the wealth and splendor. Glory. That's the way that the word is used. But... More than anything else in the Bible, the word is used of God. The glory of God, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is that which is spoken of most often. The glory of God, the wealth, the substance, the splendor, the worthiness of God. That's what we read about in the scriptures. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that that is the key to understanding our verse. Because when we read, to him be glory in the church, what we're reading about is this, that any glory in the church is God's glory. Any glory in the church is the glory of God. It's nothing to do with the church being super organized or the church having lots of members or uh, the church being quite a wealthy church, got a lot of money in our bank account. Uh, it's not about the church having a well, great name, great reputation. Glory in the church, and a glorious church, in the way that we've been using the phrase, is all about the glory of God. The glory of God. Now let me explore this in the time that's, that's available to me this morning. What I'd like to do is to show you how this glory of God is seen in the scriptures in a kind of bird's eye view. First of all in the Old Testament and secondly in the New Testament and to show how that is relevant to us being a glorious church and there being glory in the church. Now in the Old Testament, and I'm going to ask you to turn to Exodus chapter 16 please. You'll need your Bibles. Exodus chapter 16. What we find in the Old Testament is that primarily God's glory is expressed in wonderful manifestations of his awesome power and splendor and holiness. There are outstanding occasions when his awesome power and holiness radiated, shone in a wonderful manifestation of who he was. And this happened in a, a number of ways. And actually, uh, one of the words that the Jewish people coined and that was particularly used by the scribes when they wrote uh, in, uh, in one of the Jewish books called the Targum, one of the words they used was Shekinah. Actually, literally, Shekinah is not a biblical word. It's a post-biblical word. But it can describe lots of occasions of God's glory. And the word that they use, Shekinah, just e emphasizes the radiance, the shining splendor of God breaking in on men and women. And the word Shekinah literally is from the verb to dwell. So it's the presence, the dwelling of God being with his people, in the midst of his people. And here in Exodus 16, we have one of the occasions where God's glory 
is evident to the people. The context of this passage is that the Israelites have just escaped from Egypt. God's just delivered them. They've come through the Red Sea. They're in the second month now since they're uh, coming out of Egypt. And they're beginning to get disgruntled. They're beginning to grumble. They're a bit disappointed about various aspects of uh, their new life now. Uh, If any of you have been in the Sinai Desert, as I have, you'll understand why they started to grumble, because the Sinai is an inhospitable area. And so here they begin to say, we haven't got enough food to eat, we haven't got enough to drink, how are we going to survive? And so Moses brings a word from God, and says, God's going to provide for you, but God's going to do more than provide your food for you on a daily basis. And this is what we read in Exodus 16, verse 6. Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. And then we read in verse 10, while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of of the Lord appearing in the cloud. There's a cure for grumbling, isn't it? I think sometimes um, we've found this, haven't we, when we've come along to worship, perhaps, or we've come along to some gathering of Christians, and we've been a bit disgruntled, or we've had something on our mind, and we've been writhing inwardly, and our mind has been distracted, and then God breaks in. God breaks in in lovely ways. Perhaps he breaks in through the worship, through exhilarating worship where you're feeling, you're you're touching the presence of God. Or perhaps God speaks a word, perhaps a prophetic word or a word of knowledge and you know that God's speaking to you and there's a wonderful sense of God being with you. Perhaps God by his spirit breaks in on the meeting in a new way and you're filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. And uh, you know that experience of warm glow right through you, a tingling as God makes himself known. And suddenly all those grumbles and suddenly all that dissatisfaction and all the things that you are writhing about inside, suddenly they're in perspective. And the glory of the Lord is revealed. That's how God answered Job, you know. If you read through the book of Job, Job's saying, well, I see God, I'm going to ask him this, and I'm going to say that to him, and I'm going to argue this with God when I see him. And then at the end of the book, God just reveals himself in all his glory to Job, and Job just goes, I worship you. And so that's how God's glory was seen, to the, to the, uh, shown to the Israelites in the cloud. And then if you turn on to chapter 24... We find that Moses is going up the Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, Exodus 24 and verse 15. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The glory of God on the mountain of covenant, 
one of the things that we need to be reminded of from time to time, particularly when we've got a background of superpowers going to be having discussions and uh, talks, is that God covenanting with his people is not like two superpowers making some mutual agreement. It's not like two people saying, yes, we agree on that, let's shake on it. And here Moses and the people come to Mount Sinai, God's delivered them. God says, I want to be your God and you, can, you will be my people. I'm going to make covenant with you today. And just in case they got the wrong idea, just in case they thought that this is some kind of old pals agreement between equals, the glory of the Lord rests on Mount Sinai. And the people realize who they're making covenant with. Again, that's something that we need to be reminded of again and again. We're the people of God. Yes, God is our Father. God loves us. We're adopted as children. We're adopted as sons. But there are times in our gatherings when the presence of God comes and we suddenly realize something of what the New Testament speaks of when it speaks of the fear of the Lord. It's not that fear that brings us condemnation or we feel that our sword's hanging over our, our necks but it is a genuine awe in the presence of a mighty God. And that's what God did in his glory on uh, Mount Sinai. Or you could turn on to Exodus chapter 40, just on your pages a little more, and we read again about the glory of God. Exodus chapter 40. The tabernacle, this tent that is taken with the people as they travel through the wilderness... The tabernacle is set up. Different compartments, parts to the tabernacle. And uh, in the, uh, the holy place, the tent of meeting, God is pleased to meet with uh, Moses and with the priests. But read this, verse 34 of Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's awesome presence, the glory of God, God manifesting to men and women something of his splendor and his worthiness and his substance, the weight of who God is, is demonstrated in these uh, wonderful manifestations. Now we could look elsewhere in the Old Testament scriptures. We haven't got the time to do so this morning. But all I want to say is this, that our longing, more and more, as the people of God in the church, is for glory in the church. And God is still a God of Shekinah glory. Shekinah means God dwelling in the midst of his people. God making his presence felt so that as you worship, as you meet, you know God's there. The reality of God is there. God is powerfully present in the midst of the church. Glory in the church. It is possible still today to know the very real, the tangible glory of God as we meet together. And many is the time when we've come away from gathering in worship and we say, God met with us today. God was there. God was present. I'm reading, as we've been exhorted to do by Terry, books on revival. And uh, dipping into this book by Colin Whitaker, 
called Great Revivals. It's one of those books that's ever so slightly frustrating because it whets your appetite about uh, wonderful moves of God, but then goes on to another chapter and another era. And so it makes you want to to read more about it. But there's a a very small chapter on uh, the uh, amazed things that happened in 1949 in the Hebrides and uh, how God used men like Duncan Campbell. And uh, this is what Duncan Campbell says about one particular instance in a place called Arnold. The, uh, The writer of the book comments after this quotation from Duncan Campbell that Campbell was a canny Scot a man of God of the highest integrity and not given to exaggeration. And yet this is what he writes. Um, Perhaps the greatest miracle of all in the Hebrides was in the village of Arnold, said Duncan Campbell. Here a good deal of opposition was experienced. But prayer, the mighty weapon of the revival, was resorted to and an evening given to waiting upon God. Before midnight, God came down. The mountains flowed down at his presence and a wave of revival swept the village. Opposition and spiritual death fled before the presence of the Lord of life. He who has demonstrated the power of prevailing prayer and that nothing lies beyond the reach of prayer except that which lies outside the will of God. There are those in Arnold today who will bear witness to the fact that while one person prayed, the very house shook. I can only stand in silence as wave after wave of divine power swept through the house and in a matter of minutes following this heaven sent visitation men and women were on their faces in distress of soul and they went out of the building after this and people in the middle of the night were out in the streets and uh, talking about their need of Christ it was a move of God it was God coming it was what Mark was talking about earlier we need a visitation of God something extraordinary something supernatural And God still breaks in in these ways. In Acts 4, one of the passages Mark read from says that the whole house shook as they prayed and as God filled them again with the Holy Spirit. God is still a God who manifests himself in such ways, making his presence known. Last Wednesday, uh, Dave Fellingham and a small group of musicians went to Rustington. They nearly didn't get there because of a double booking and... uh, much to, to Dave's great embarrassment, he found that he was booked to be teaching in the Family Life Seminar and leading a celebration over at Rustington. And so he rang uh, Ishmael over at Rustington and explained the situation. Ishmael said, oh, I'll come and do your Family Life Seminar. Were any of you there on Wednesday when Ishmael did the Family Life Seminar, one or two of you? Can I, by the way, encourage you about these seminars um, to, to be there? There's only one more Weeks, week of seminars, that's not this week but the week after, so please take advantage of them, actually the numbers have been probably more disappointing this time than they were the last time and uh, just that's just an aside, anyway Dave went to Rustington and they were leading the, the, the gathering in worship and apparently I think it was during one song, I think it might have been Danny Reed a song of Danny Reed's, somebody started to laugh and it wasn't a nasty laugh, it was just a, 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 a happy laugh. And then the ripple effect came right over the place. And before they knew what was happening, the whole place just had a sense of the joy of God. People laughing and enjoying God. Dave abandoned all thoughts of preaching. <laughs> and uh, they just the whole evening they enjoyed the presence of God. God's there. And during the evening there were one or two who were healed 
God came in, he just touched their bodies and healed them. There were others who'd been locked up and needed deliverance, needed setting free. And they, they became evident as the evening proceeded. And again, God was able to just move. The presence of God, he said, was tangible. God was there. To him be glory in the church. Isn't that wonderful? The glory of God coming into the church. Oh, I just praise God that we're living in days when more and more we're being open to God coming in the midst of his people. I thank God so much for the, the, the days of a rigid pattern where you couldn't move from this pattern of worship that uh, you, you had to stick to. It was a hymn and then it was a prayer and then it was a reading. You sat down, then you stood up and then you sat down. And I'm not saying that people are not genuinely worshipping God from sincere hearts, but I am saying that so many times we've thwarted God from breaking in upon us. We've said, God, this is the way that we operate. And if you can't break in on this way, then, we, then it's no good. I thank God that he's breaking in as have more flexible formats. As we come together and we're more open to God disrupting the morning. And so God says, let there be glory in the church. When we come to the, the New Testament, I have to move on now. When we come to the New Testament... Um, we see how God's glory is revealed there. And if God's glory is primarily revealed in uh, Shekinah manifestations in the Old Testament, we find that his glory is revealed primarily in the New Testament in a person. And that's Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus is the Son who is the radiance of God's glory. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Now, sometimes the glory of God was seen in Jesus in the kind of Shekinah sense. For instance, when the angels announced the arrival of the baby Jesus, we're told that the glory of God shone all around the shepherds. And they were sore afraid, as we remember. Um, the glory of God, the Shekinah radiance bursting out. Similarly, on the mount when uh, three disciples went up with Jesus and when he was praying and suddenly his clothes began to be bristling white and two other figures from the past stood with him, Moses and Elijah and the glory of God sh shone out there. That again was God's Shekinah glory bursting out in, in Jesus. And Jesus prayed, didn't he, about the glory that he'd enjoyed with the Father before the world began that my disciples might see it. There is a resurrection, something of the glory of the risen Jesus going through locked doors, appearing, disappearing. The angels, the manifestations alongside that. Then his ascension into heaven. So many occasions in the New Testament when the glory of God in Jesus is seen in a similar way to the Old Testament. Presence of God bursting out in the midst of people. But... We see something else in the New Testament. For instance, we read in John's Gospel, chapter 1, and verse 14. We know very well the opening words of that verse. The word became flesh and lived for a while among us. But then it goes on. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Full of grace and truth. 
I think one of the things that God wants to impress upon the church is that glory in the church does not just mean manifestations of God's presence when we meet together. But in Jesus, the glory of God was seen in his daily life. Moving around, there was something glorious about this man. There was something about his attitude. There was something about his demeanor. There was something about the way he spoke to people. The way he spoke to people who were outcasts, as well as the way he spoke to the, 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 the gentry. There was something about the integrity of his life, about the sinlessness. There was something about the way nobody could put their finger on sin in his life. There was something about his words, the truth, the authority, the wholesomeness of his language. Jesus was one of these people that the disciples said, spoke to you of the glory of God. And it was nothing to do with Shekinah glory, but it was full of grace and truth in the way that he lived. And that's the kind of church that God wants, for there to be glory in the church. For when people come amongst us, they find not only God breaking in in our meetings and making his presence felt, but they also meet with the people that are attractive, that are wholesome, whose word can be trusted who are winsome in their attitude and sensitive and caring. There is a grace about them. In other words, they're not always heavy and putting you under condemnation and pressure. But there's a lovely grace, a lovely lightness about their attitude. And you know that they speak the truth. They're people of integrity. That's glory, says the Testament. Yes, that's glory. Don't get into your head that the only glory... In the church is the glory of God breaking in in meetings in an outstanding way. However wonderful that is. If you have that without the glory of walking in grace and truth, then the other is actually going to be undermined. And then we read in John 2. We read about Jesus at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And we know the story of how the, the wine runs out and how Jesus gets the, the waiters to fill the, the Jewish ceremonial washing jars up with water and water is changed uh, into wine and then in verse 11 it says this the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him again I come back to something Mark said uh, a short while ago Um, more and more God is teaching us as a church to as we move out in society not just in our meetings on a Sunday but as we're out there at a wedding here it is or it may be you know, with a group of friends or it may be talking to somebody uh, in the shopping arcade but more and more naturally for us to be ready to pray ready to step out as God nudges us as God shows us what's happening to pray for somebody perhaps to call upon God for something of God to break in more and more in natural situations everyday situations for there to be lovely signs and lovely wonders that bring glory to God and that's glory in the church just the same isn't it glory in the church when the church distributed every way this way and that way on a, on a Monday morning some at work some shopping, some in the home, some at school or college. Isn't it glory in the church when this member and that member is open to God, sensitive to God, no 
in their heart, if God is leading them to share with somebody else about Jesus or pray for a friend who's in need, and God breaks in, God answering prayer, God touching somebody right there in the middle of the street as you pray for them quietly when they've told you about how they're really depressed or they're being bereaved and suddenly you pray for them and God just touches them. A sign. They begin to realize who Jesus is and this is God manifesting his glory. That's what Jesus did right in the natural situation of, uh, of a wedding. Lots and lots more. Let's look at one more. John chapter 13 verse 31. This, more than anything in John's Gospel, is what is identified uh, as glory in the ministry of Jesus. Again and again in John, John's Gospel, it talks about Jesus' hour of glory. What is Jesus' hour of glory, we might ask? Is Jesus' hour of glory his transfiguration? Is Jesus' hour of glory when he raises Lazarus from the dead? Is Jesus' hour of glory when he bursts from the tomb? Is Jesus' hour of glory when he's ascended on that cloud into heaven? No. His hour of glory is when he suffers and he dies. How about that? Glory. And this is what we read, John 13. Judas has just gone out to betray Jesus in the Last Supper from the upper room. And verse 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, then God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. That deserves more time than I got this morning. But basically, again and again, in the Gospel of John particularly, it is the suffering and death of Jesus that is referred to as glory. Right throughout the nation today, uh, men and women are remembering those who gave their life for others. Remembering those who died in two world wars and ma many other wars besides. That's why people are wearing poppies today and remembering with uh, solemnity and, uh, and gratitude those who gave their life, some who suffer still today because of it. And sometimes there are stories of the most wonderful heroism of people who gave their life to protect others, to save others. Against all the odds they just gave themselves and my friends, that is the glory of Jesus. That is the supreme glory of Jesus. That he left the glory of heaven, the splendor, the adulation, the reality of fellowship with the Father. And he came and he gave his life on the cross. He gave himself on the cross for our sins. He submitted himself to the worst that men and women could do. And that is his moment of greatest glory. And the moment that people lifted Jesus up onto a terrible, torture-ridden cross was the moment he would say he was enthroned. And the crown on his head, the crown of thorns. Jesus, his hour of glory. And it's because of that moment, it's because of that hour that we are here this morning. It's because of that that we have had our lives changed. Our thinking's been changed. Our values are different now, aren't they? A few years ago, there are many of us who wouldn't have been seen dead in a, in a situation like this. We wouldn't have wanted anything to do with it. But God's changed us. Why? Because of the hour of glory. Because of what Jesus did on the cross. Now, the church's glory sometimes will be in pain as well. 
the church's glory often will be taking up the cross, being different, being radically different from the world. The cross was a one-way journey. When you picked up the cross, you went through the jeering, laughing crowds, and you knew you were on your own. It was a one-way journey. There was no coming back. And Jesus calls the church to be a church who pick up the cross, who are different, radically different. And that sometimes means jeering. It sometimes means, in some parts of the world, outright persecution. But that is your glory in the church, says God. Actually, in 1 Peter 4, verse 14, says that when we're insulted, we are blessed. Because it says the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Isn't that wonderful? Wonderful. The glory of God in the church. So when we talk about glorious church, when we talk about glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, about all generations, it's God's glory that we're talking about. But when we look at the verse again, and this is what I would have liked to have developed much more, but I'm just going to mention it in ending. When we look at the verse, we see that not only is this glory in the church God's glory, but this glory in the church is also to God's glory. It's to him be glory in the church. We sometimes ask ourselves, what on earth can we possibly give to God? God is the one who has all things. God is the one who outgives everyone. Verse 20 in Ephesians 3 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. He's a great giver. How can we possibly give to God? The other morning, Liz and I got up early to pray. We talked together about different things that we needed to pray for. Then we came to prayer. And just as we came to prayer, God gave me one of these momentary kind of mental pictures. And the mental picture was of me coming with a tray to God, an empty tray... Uh, with my request, if you like. But also, in a flash, um, the, the picture alongside it was of a figure who I took to be the Lord himself with a huge, a massive tray full of good things. Before I even had any chance to ask him, there he was with a tray that held much more than my small tray could cope with. And it was just a momentary thing that thrilled me as I came to prayer. Now, what can we bring to you, Lord? Well, the word of God says, to him be glory in the church. When the glory of God is seen in the church, it brings glory to God in the whole of creation. That's what we looked at the last time in Ephesians 3.10 about all created beings. We are demonstrating the wisdom of God to uh, the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. When the church displays the glory of God, It's not just that we offer something small to God, but the whole of creation rejoices. The whole created order of beings praise God and honour his name and give him homage. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Thank you, Lord.